0: So, that was good. Uh, we're going to be in Acts again today, chapter 8. And as you know, the title of our series is Acts, the Church on Earth, because it's the church on earth, as we've said a million times before. But really, I think, again, just to reiterate, I think sometimes we forget that we are the church, that this, the things that happened in the Bible, the things that the people believed in the Bible, the people in the Bible were all real, just like you or me. And sometimes it helps to come to the scripture with that lens that, man, this word is for me. This Bible was written by God for me, not in a selfish way, but really in a way to realize that, hey, this is God's word. And it's just as applicable today as it would be any other day. But the title of today's message is Bound by Iniquity, to be bound by iniquity. Um, last time we saw a national history of rejection, we talked about basically Stephen gave his whole message over 50 something verses, um, about the history of Israel from Abraham to Moses, to David, to Solomon, to John the Baptist and the prophets and how each of them were, was rejected in their own way that God would, would reach out to the nation of Israel and they would listen for a while. Perhaps they would follow for a while, perhaps, but then they would begin to reject him. Then they would begin to look back to Egypt like we saw and really turn their hearts away from the Lord. We saw their final rejection, really, that these guys as religious leaders who brought Stephen, the deacon, before before them for preaching the gospel and healing people. Um, they brought him before them, and they heard the message, and a lot of the same language was used. We saw one accord. We saw they were cut to the heart, but their reaction was a total rejection. They gnashed their teeth, they picked up rocks, and they began to stone him, and they killed him. It was a lot different than the reactions that we saw by other groups of people in Acts so far. But Stephen was martyred, and as he was martyred, he prayed for them. And then we were introduced to Saul. This young man named Saul was standing by, and he was sort of the coat rack guy. Everyone kind of handed him their coats, and he had this sign of approval. But as we go on this week into chapter 8, we're going to see that Saul begins to set out um, on his journey. Uh, We see the church begin to be persecuted. We see that the gospel goes out, and we are introduced to a man named Simon. In fact, most of today's message is going to be about a man named Simon. But I ask, before we even get to the verse that has iniquity in it, what is iniquity? What is iniquity? Uh, it's used in this chapter, and the word is, uh, I'm not going to butcher it, but it's Greek, adikia. Uh It's injustice as a judge, perhaps if you were to go to court and the ruling wasn't correct and the judge ruled incorrectly, that word iniquity could be used there. Um, it's also unrighteousness of heart and life. Um, It's a deed violating law and justice or an act of unrighteousness. And I think if we were to think about that, we'd probably say that there's a lot of iniquity today, that laws are being made, uh, court cases are going through, uh, people are being taken advantage of uh, all around the world. And we would say that there is plenty of iniquity uh, to go around. Um, The way I like to think of the word iniquity is really being unequal to perfection. That's not the dictionary definition, but that's the way I like to think of it, because it's iniquity. It's almost unequal. Um, And we hear it a lot in the Bible, the word, at least in English, iniquity. You know, the Old Testament is in Hebrew, the New Testament is written in Greek, so there's slightly different words used here and there. But in English, in the New King James Version, uh, which is what we're reading today, uh, iniquity is used 241 times. 241 times. And the first time it was used like this, uh, it's a slightly different word, as we'll see, but it was with God's covenant with Abraham, or Abram at the time, in Genesis 15. Um, and we see that God promises Abram to give him descendants like the stars, and they go through this covenant. But it says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abram believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for Righteousness. That Abram was given this righteousness, not because of something he did, not because of who he was or what he owned, but because he believed God and what God had promised him. And then God, Abram falls asleep while he's supposed to be making this covenant with God, and God ends up cutting the covenant. And then a couple of verses later in verse 15, uh, God says, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Basically saying that, hey, I've promised you these descendants like the stars, you believe me, and that's righteousness, um, that you would believe God as word, but that your descendants aren't going to come back to inherit this land for quite some time yet. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And that word iniquity there is uh, the word Avon in Hebrew. It's perversity, depravity, iniquity. Um, it's the guilt of iniquity. It's a guilty condition, like their whole life is just guilty before God. Um, but it's also, it could be used as a consequence or a punishment for iniquity, that their iniquity is so great that a punishment has, has to come upon them. And I think that this word has a little more personal uh, flair to it. It's a little more closer to the heart, that this, these people in their heart was just full of iniquity. And it's interesting that God says that it's not complete or not full yet, that there was almost like this gas gauge of iniquity for the Amorites before the Lord, that, yeah, it wasn't yet full yet, so it wasn't yet time for God to act and bring in uh, Abram's descendants in there. <clears throat> And excuse me, I think that that sense of God's grace and his mercy, because God doesn't just see any iniquity because he's perfect. And so basically anything that is sin is before him and imperfect and unequal and full of iniquity. So if God were to act right away with the baseball bat, like sometimes we think he's up there with the bat over us and just whack out iniquity like whack-a-mole anytime he sees it, I don't think we would get very far. And I think when we look at the Old Testament, a lot of people might say, isn't God a, a violent God, a warring God? Well, we see here that God gave plenty of time for the Amorites to come around. God gave them plenty of time. Several more generations had to pass before God would say, okay, you've done enough iniquity. Your lives are soulful iniquity. I'm going to take you out of this land and bring my people into it. I'm not going to rewrite the Bible, but I have to believe in some sense that, man, if, if something happened with the Amorites, would they have just turned from their iniquity and sought the living God that, Maybe something different would have happened. We see Saul's judgment, another form of iniquity. Later on, the first king of Israel, Saul, when his kingdom was taken away from him, uh, God told him not to take any of the sheep and the lambs and the stuff from uh, basically these people that they had conquered. But he said, oh, let me keep them and I'll do a sacrifice and just really broke God's command to him. And Samuel said to him, uh, because of uh, here it is, First Samuel fifteen twenty three. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. And Saul goes on to you know say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And Samuel goes, It's too late. You know you're going to lose his kingdom. You know not that God won't forgive you per se, but man, you've gone too far. Your role was too important for you to disobey God and to maintain that role. And these will make sense, I think, as we get into the chapter. But we see David uh, before Saul. You guys remember Saul wanted to kill David after this point. Saul remained king, but God said, you're not going to be king anymore. And David says in 1 Samuel 20 verse 1, Then David fled from uh, Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, Saul's son, What have I done? And what is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? That Saul wanted to kill him. And David's like, What have I done? I've I've only tried to do the good to your father. I've only tried to respect him in things. We remember Saul tried to kill him on several occasions. And David had to flee for his life. But there was no iniquity there. You know, later on, David numbers the people when he's king. And God said, don't number the people, David. And David says, hey, let me number the people. Even against uh, his counselor's decree. And God says, I'm going to have to bring a judgment on you. And he gives him these options. Um, whether it's going to be people invading or other things going on or the hand of the Lord. And David says, man, I don't want man's judgment. I want God's judgment. So God comes in and brings judgment on the people because of David's iniquity and his sin. And um, it's serious. A lot of people die that day. But Second Chronicles 19.7, uh, the second part of that verse says, For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God. No partiality or taking of bribes. That idea of judgment again. That when God judges something, when God makes a decision, when God decrees something, he's holy. There's no iniquity in him. So if he says something, if he judges something to be right or wrong, or takes an action against a certain people or a people group, you kinda have to go, Well, it's God and there's no iniquity in him, so it must be correct, even if I don't understand it. And first Peter second Peter three nine, excuse me, says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but as long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, God doesn't whack us over the head when we fail, when we sin. He, he wants to draw us close, but there comes a time that He's going to return. There comes a time when He's going to say, Hey, I want you to be forgiven. I want you not to die, but you've rejected me so long that I have to do something now. Again, iniquity is no joke. It's moral depravity that must be dealt with. Whether it's in a people group, whether it's in a nation, or whether it's just in you and me, the truth is, is that this iniquity begins with sin in our heart, that Saul thought in his heart, hey, I've got a better idea than God. David said, oh, I'm going to number the people, even though God said not to, and it had major consequences. And again, God allows this stuff to go on for a time in his grace, but there does come a time that it must be dealt with. You know, God is a slow hand in punishing us, but I think a swift hand When he brings his judgment, like when he judged David, it was quick. When he judged Jesus on the cross, it was quick. It was over, and Jesus said it was finished. But that one short day, so to speak, I'm sure it didn't feel short to Jesus on the cross, dealt with thousands of years of our sin. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah, or Babylon, or Israel, or even today where God could have brought judgment much sooner than he did, but he lets it go on for a while that there might be repentance. And Lord, we ask that today, God, you would... Uh, forgive us of the iniquities in our heart and the sin and god let their uh, not find its home in there but lord may you find your home in us and in your word today we ask in jesus name amen so let's go on let's read the first three verses of acts chapter 8 <clears throat> it says now saul was consenting to his death and that's stephen's death And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. We'll stop there. And it says in this first verse here that Saul was consenting. And we're going to look at a lot of different words today. Um, Just was kind of worked out that way in the study. But I'm not going to really mess this one up. But uh, the word is, it's an S word, S-Y-N. You could look it up later. But to be pleased together with or to approve together. To be pleased at the same time with or to consent or to agree to or to applaud. This word consent here, when Saul was consenting to Stephen's death, Stephen the martyr, Stephen the Christian, Stephen the one who just explained the gospel to them, just prayed for them as they were killing them. It was more than just, okay, all right, you guys do what you want to do. It was, yes, okay, give me those coats so you can throw those rocks harder. Yes, I applaud this. This is great. This is good. This is what this word consenting was. It was approving. It was pleasing to Saul to see this go on because he was so religiously zealous for what he thought was the truth. Even killing someone who said something different was important to him. You know, what did they kill Stephen for? Did he do something wrong? No, he was a devout Christian. He was out doing the gospel, ministering to people. We saw him become a deacon uh, not too uh, much earlier in in the book. But I think that it's important that we're not approving or pleased with or applauding the iniquity of the world because the world is morally corrupt. It's bankrupt. You know, the things that the world applauds this day and age, the thing that the world is approving of, whether they do it or not, they approve of it, it brings about death, you know, whether it's movies or cultural fads or movements, even in the church that are just ungodly or full of iniquity or rationalizing sin. Man, we can't applaud that. We can't stand by and say, I'll hold your coat while you go and do this uh, because I love you, brother. No, it, it doesn't quite work that way. Um, there's a, a show on TV recently that uh, came out and uh, a coworker worker uh, emailed the whole office. Like, hey, did you guys check out the show? They, I'm not going to get to the specifics of it. And uh, I said, no, you know, honestly, I was kind of disappointed. It's not something that I could have my kids watch. And I kind of hoped they would do that. And they ended up changing the show. And she didn't really understand it. And I didn't say it like, I can't believe you watched it. I said, no, no, I was just kind of disappointed. And this other show is coming out that I'm kind of looking forward to. Or this other movie or whatever that hopefully we bring the kids to. But it was like this, just this disconnect, you know. Hey, no, you liked it, enjoyed it, okay. But, you know, I just, I have no interest in it. But this act here where they stone Stephen, you know, this may have been the spark or one of the many instances that kicked off the first major persecution of the Christians. We see that Paul, uh, they begin to stone Stephen before this. They just kind of beat up the apostles. They just kind of brought them aside and scolded them a little bit. But now they actually killed somebody. Now it was almost kind of like they crossed the line and they said, OK, we killed one. Well, let's go kill another and another and another and another and begin to react against the church. Um, and we see that it actually it scatters the believers out of their land. You know, If we look at the Middle East today and ISIS taking over certain areas, um, one way or the other, Christians are being scattered. Christians are being persecuted. Their houses being marked. Their places of worship being burned down all across the world. And they're being kicked out. And I think that there's a very similar thing. These people are going in and killing other people because they're so zealous for their quote-unquote um, faith. But it's interesting to see that um, the apostles stuck around that I'm sure there's believers in those parts of the world that are facing this, such uh, persecution that are sticking around. But these apostles, they stuck around. It's interesting; They didn't flee. Remember at the cross they fled, at the garden they fled, but now things were different and they didn't flee um, and they weren't moved. And it says that devout men carried Stephen off. And I think you'd probably have to be pretty devout to carry Stephen off at this point to go bury him. Imagine this, you know, we go outside, one of you gets stoned by some religious Zealot out front. What do the rest of us do? Do we lock the door? You know, do we call nine one one? Someone else to come get the body, or do Gus and I go outside and and carry uh, someone back out? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I think I'd be a little scared for my life. (laughs) You know, Um, I have kids. I I can't go. So who doesn't have kids? You you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. These guys were devout. I said that they lamented very greatly for him. You know that that we still see this great love uh, for the believers in the church. And it says that Saul makes havoc of the church in verse 3. You know, this word havoc, it's not just beating them up. It's not just kicking them out. It's not like the SWAT team with Saul at the front comes in here, kicks us all out, you know, causes us to go to some refugee camp somewhere. It says that he, he causes havoc on the church as a whole. And that word havoc is interesting because it means to affix a stigma to, to dishonor or to spot or defile, to treat shamefully or with injury, to ravage, to devastate or ruin. That this idea that when... Saul was going in there, persecuting the church. It wasn't just beating up the Christians. It was, in a sense, slandering their character. It was, in a sense, saying that the church is a bad thing, that Christianity is a bad thing. You guys don't want it around you. You know, he'd go around to the neighbors and make a scene with the neighbors. You know, maybe that's what he did. I don't know, but that's the context I get from this word, havoc, that, man, the community began to look on, who was once looking at the church in great esteem, we saw a few chapters ago, is now going, I don't know if I want to be associated with them. They're getting killed. They're getting kicked out. They must be doing something wrong. These people wouldn't be turning on their own people if it was as good as they said it was. But I think that the parallels here with what's going on around us in the world and America are quite astounding. That people are being kicked out of their uh, homes and places around the world. But in other places where that's not the persecution, the persecution coming upon the church and upon Christianity is really a stigma. Really, oh, you're a bigot. Oh, you're not open minded. Oh, you don't love people. Oh, how could you believe that? Even in Christian circles where they turn and say, how can you even believe the Bible? I go, well, if you don't believe the Bible for what it says, why are you even a Christian? You know, the time is coming, guys, when we may not be able to live where we live, work where we work, or do what we do because we're believers. I pray that doesn't come. I pray that something changes. But, you know, it's very possible that it could come within our lifetimes, uh, even in America. And I think that the worst part about all this is that it's just a stigma. It's just a mark upon the church. Um, You know, it's a public opinion formed on a biased source. It's disinformation, misinformation, and slander that people begin to hear these things about the church, begin to see the persecution going on in in Saul's day and in our day, and they won't even get close enough to find out. You know, maybe the church failed in our day and age, and that's what kind of leads to it, and it was a little different back then. But I think that's the saddest part that people begin to be afraid of the things of God without actually digging into it. They begin to hate Christians and hate Christianity and not want anything to do with the Bible only because of what they've heard. They've never ingested it for themselves. They've never investigated it for themselves. You know, Saul, really here, we see him. He was kind of pulled back at uh, Stephen's um, death and it really kind of launched for it like a wrecking ball. He was on a collision course with God. We're going to see that in the next chapter. That as Paul's going through, wrecking the church, throwing punches, um, dragging people off to jail and persecuting the church uh, in a big way, we see that God, God has a plan for all that. Uh, and it probably doesn't make sense when we think about it. How could God have, plan, have a plan for that? I mean, if we've read the New Testament or understand uh, Paul's life at all or Saul's life, we, we see what happens. But if you were just to read here, you'd go, man, no way does that guy have a chance. No way. But we'll see a difference in, in the next chapter. Let's go on. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and, the mir- he- excuse me, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. You know that word, therefore, you've probably heard it before. If we see the word, therefore, we have to ask, what is it there for? Well, therefore, those who are scattered went everywhere preaching the word, therefore, because of the persecution, because of Saul arresting people, what happens? The gospel spreads. It doesn't just stay local to Jerusalem. It begins to spread out through their land, through their land, Um, you know. Sometimes we, my family and I would take a walk after dinner. We'd get the double stroller out, throw the kids in, and we'd go through a walk-through neighborhood. And Mia likes to pick up pine cones and things. But there were some dandelions, and we picked them up, and I taught her how to blow in the dandelion. And the little you know, seeds go flying everywhere. And if you have a yard, and you saw me walking by a yard and doing that, you'd probably get upset. <laughs> you know, we were kind of away from anyone's yard. But, because you know that those little seeds, as they go out, even though it's a weed, they go out. And they land in the yard, and then a bunch of other little dandelions sprout up. And then more and more. And before you know it, your your yard isn't grass anymore. It's all dandelions. And I think in the same way, that's what happens with the church. That, yeah, there's persecution coming. There's this wind that blows all these seeds out there. But guess what? It starts to spread, and other things begin to happen and pop up. And persecution, in God's economy, it becomes a good thing. You know, I don't like that. I don't like to believe that. I don't like to hear that. I don't like to read that. God, you allow persecution to make the church grow? You allow persecution or hard times to come in my life to help me grow? You know, hard things, hot things, painful things to allow me to get through stuff? No, I don't want that. You know, I want to sit back. I want to relax. I want, you know, life to be easy. And uh, the longer I go on, the more I realize that it's, it's not easy. And you know why? Because we're not of this world. You know, this world is going one way and we're going the other. So if things are really easy and you've got a tailwind, maybe we're going the wrong direction you know i went to the mall yesterday and i'm like hoofing it there and then i'm hoofing it back and i totally got lost i forgot which garage i parked in and there's all these different ways it was the mall down uh, outside bethesda um but man i got lost and i don't know why i'm sharing that but it was funny uh, i had to text my wife i'm like i'm totally lost <laughs> i'm that guy but philip here we see this guy philip uh goes out and uh, he goes to Samaria. You know, Philip was one of the first disciples. He was from Bethsaida, the same as Andrew and Peter. Um, And we see that the message that that Philip brings, the multitudes with one accord, heeded. And we begin to see the same thing happen again, just like it did in the first bunch of chapters in Acts when Peter was sharing the message of the gospel that many people heard it, and many people believed, and they believed with one accord. And that's not the silly joke about the, the Honda Accord where they all came in one car, but it was really that... They were with one accord, one mind, one heart, one soul. And, uh, and we see that in the gospel, that when the gospel is received, that's the way it's received. But I think we have to ask, why did they receive it? Well, it's because they heard and they saw the miracles that backed up Philip's preaching. That Philip's preaching had a power to it that couldn't be recreated somewhere else. That God's power through Philip and through the word and through the miracles and the healings that were done through his message and his ministry... Brought people to faith. You know, there's this uh, great video about this from this ministry I've seen online about when they go to Columbia and they're from America and they're leading worship and evangelizing down there, and people are getting healed left and right. And, you know, for the first hour I'm I'm watching it going, is this legit or not? (laughs) You know, really, just kind of examining it. I'm not going to take it at face value, especially in this day and age. But as I watched, it was like, man, yeah, this is God working. These people are going out into uh, third world areas, uh, jungle areas, people where there's witchcraft and other things going on. And God begins to heal these people to show them that, no, 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 this witchcraft doesn't have real power, that God has real power. And you can believe and trust in his word. You know, I have friends who went to Mexico on missions same similar things going on people being healed i've been to the bahamas similar things where people will be healed not that it was miraculous like we picked some lame guy up off the street but people were healed people came to know him i have friends who do missions in china and they say the same thing god does these crazy miracles crazy in our eyes in the midst of these countries that are totally closed off or maybe haven't experienced the gospel before because god knows that this is what's going to reach them this is what's going to open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and when god shows up it's for real you know a lot of people go around door-to-door salesmen you know we've had a lot of people come to our door door door-to-door lately my wife texted me the other day that someone came to the door wondering about our like washington gas bill and she was like no 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 don't worry about it you know like washington gas is not going to come to your door (laughs) you know just because he has a clipboard doesn't mean that he has any authority um that's the same way just because someone holds a bible up doesn't mean that they have any authority it's got to be god's power working through it um But again, why do we see these miracles? It's because God was making himself real to the people that they could trust him. And you might say, well, why don't we see any miracles here in America? And I would say we probably do or we probably could. um, But I think that we're instead distracted by the miracles of modern life. Maybe we're distracted by things. Maybe we're dependent on others and ourselves as opposed to God performing that miracle in our lives. And I think in America, at least, we've heard the word. We know what the Bible says. Each of us probably owns several Bibles. We can download 10 different Bible apps. There's websites. We have free access to it. We've seen what God does, in a sense, and yet we're not satisfied here. We want something else. And man, that reminds me of the Israelites walking in the wilderness. God provided for their needs. God went before them. God did miracles to bring them out of Egypt and out of persecution and slavery. And they said, "Oh, what about all the good stuff we had in Egypt? What good stuff? You no, know, we have manna every day. We don't have to work. We just go out and we pick up manna every day. Oh, this isn't good enough for me, you know? Man, I think that's the same thing with us. And again, these, these people were with one accord, and it's a good accord again. It's good to see that they were united together, not gnashing their teeth, but, um, but really following the Lord. But this section, we see that uh, these people in Samaria, uh, if you remember the Samaritans, they were half Jewish. They were really kind of looked down upon by the Jewish people. They had kind of had to have their own places of worship because they weren't allowed to come to the temple. Um, Jesus ministered to a woman there um, at the well. There was a parable of the Good Samaritan where, you know, he, uh, he helps the guy out and he was the one who truly knew God. But we see that they were severely involved in spiritual things and they were, in fact, possessed by demons, they had uh, a lot of paralyzed people around there, and these problems that these people have were not first world problems. They were not, I can't pay my mortgage, you know, I lost my job, it's, I'm possessed by demons, (laughs) (laughs) I haven't walked my whole life, you know, they had real problems, and I think that that's maybe why we see the miracles in these people's lives as opposed to seeing them sometimes in our lives, because we tend to make our problems bigger than they really are. Not that the problems you and I have are small by any chance, but I think sometimes they're really out of context. And we see that these people who at one time, like I said, were into witchcraft and there was a lot of demon possession going on. God does powerful miracles to again, show them that there is a difference here. There is a power here. And verse eight is great. It says, and there was a great joy in that city. And I bet, you know, what a significant change spiritually and physically for these people you know uh, that they were possessed they were lost they were stuck in these other things they were uh, cut off from their jewish heritage just because they were quote unquote half breeds in their eyes and yet now they're saved now they can turn to the true and living god and there's freedom there Um, and i think of revivals in the past in america where whole towns you read about in the 1800s whole towns would get saved whole towns would get saved bars would close preachers would come to town and people would weep over their sin and be broken over their sin. And you think, how much sin could there really have been back then compared to now? Um, But again, they were all in one accord. And I think that that's very different than what we see going on today. Um, If you guys can, at some point, I would really encourage you to check out a message um, from Pastor Joe Foch of Calvary Chapel, Philly, called Now is the Time. It's from two weeks ago or so. But he brings up the point and... um, it's very good. I think that we're at a point in our society, in Western culture, that there really needs to be a revival or there's going to be a rapture. You know, that historically God, when the church has kind of waned and gotten sick and kind of gone the route that it's gone, God tends to bring a revival. We've seen that many times through church history. Um, but we look at the, the world political situation. We look at the, the way people are, are crying out for world peace and unity and the undue injustice and iniquity, and yet they don't want to heed God's word. We go, wow, they're really clamoring out for something else. I Look it up later, Global Citizen online. Go into your favorite search engine and type in Global Citizen. There's this whole UN objective in the next 15 years to bring basically world peace. Uh, they want to make steps for it. Um, uh, not that it's necessarily bad. They want to help poor people. They want to end injustice. They want to cut down on pollution uh, if you go that route um, and all these other things and bring about uh, the end to all sorts of things. Um, But I have to wonder, man, if they don't want to do it God's way and they say they want to end inequalities in our social life, I have to wonder, is that sort of what's going on here in America where everyone's equal except Christians? And I think about what the Bible talks about where we're citizens of heaven, where, yeah, we live on earth, but my citizenship is in heaven. And man, the Bible talks about the spirit of the Antichrist being in the world where it's not anti against Christ so much as it is instead of Christ. We want all the things that God's kingdom would bring upon earth, peace, goodwill towards men you know, matrimony, but we don't want God. And I think that that's very in- indicative of where we are um, in history. So I pray that there's a revival. I want there to be a revival. I hope there is. I know that God wants there to be a revival. I and mean, more people will be saved, but I don't know that it's going to happen, at least on a large scale. I hope that it happens on some sort of scale. But man, I wouldn't be surprised if the Lord comes back today or next week. Um, It's not to say I don't pay my bills, but sincerely, um, it could be any moment. Let's go on. Verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. And just to preface this section, really, that these next few verses do say a lot. You know, there's a lot packed into this area about this guy, Simon, about the cultural state of these people. Um, And I think it's important that as we read through the next um, verses uh, through verse 25, that we really consider this as we consider the scriptures. We consider where these people are coming from, what they believe, and what this man believes and says and does, and uh, hopefully apply it. But it says here in verse 9, But there was a certain man named Simon. And that really reminds me how Ananias was described by the writer Luke uh, a few chapters ago. In chapter 5 said, mm, there's a certain guy named Ananias and he sold a piece of land. And we saw the people giving uh, to the church and selling things. And Ananias held back and lied to them and God dealt with that pretty uh, swiftly. But it says that this certain man named Ananias, mm, maybe there's something here that we need to watch out for. It says that he previously practiced sorcery. And the word practice is used, that he used sorcery for his own gain. He used it. It was like his living, his lifestyle. And here, the word sorcery, sorcery can mean several different things. But here, basically, he was was a magician. Uh, The word is magiou. I can't even say it right. But you think of the the wise men around Christmas time, um, only uh, uh, 88 days. Is that right? I copied and pasted that. I hope it's 80. I thought it was 180 days, but it probably is 88 days till Christmas. Like the wise men coming from the east, or maybe they were astrologers or astronomers. But this guy was a magician. He practiced magical arts. You know, today he probably have a show in Las Vegas um, where he's kind of there and doing his thing and making his money off it. And he says that he claimed to be someone great. Says, "I'm the great Houdini. I'm the great, you know, Simon. Come and watch me." And this is kind of how he got his kicks. Um, but elsewhere in the Bible, we see uh, sorcery. Um, in a little deeper sense that yeah this guy maybe he was just doing parlor tricks maybe he was just pulling cards out of a hat and had a bunny hidden in the bottom somewhere uh, maybe it was a little deeper the the word here doesn't have a connotation of something more spiritual but, but but even if it doesn't there's still a spiritual side to magic that you look on and say not that it's wrong to watch magic or anything but you watch and it's it's deceptive and it's in its uh, practice and I think if you take it to the nth degree it is it is bad but elsewhere in the Bible, we see uh, sorcery as consulting mediums, or witchcraft even. In Galatians five nineteen through 21, uh, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, etc., etc., etc. It's uh, quite a list. And he says at the end, just as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That someone who's an adulterer, and someone who's uh, someone who practices witchcraft, it's sin in God's eyes, and you can't claim to be a Christian and, and maintain a lifestyle that is totally opposed to God. doesn't mean you can't get saved out of it, but really you can't do both at the same time. And we see the word witchcraft is used um, plenty more times in the Bible, but this word witchcraft here in Galatians 5 is pharmakia, and that might ring a bell. It might make you think, oh, the pharmacy. Um, because that's similar to what the meaning of the word is, that's the Greek word where we get our modern word pharmacy. It's the use or administering of drugs, it's poisoning, it's sorcery, it's magical arts, often found in connection with idolatry fostered by it, uh, or it's a metaphor for the deceptions and seductions of idolatry, that there's this connection between witchcraft and idolatry. And when, when I say pharmacia, when I say the use administering of drugs, I don't mean your pharmacist down at CVS who gives you, you know, uh, a painkiller because you've had back surgery or gives you an antibiotic or something like that. You're not taking these drugs trying to reach another realm. Just, you just had surgery. And, you know, thankfully we have pain medicine for that or we have cold medicine. I'm, I'm thankful for these things. Otherwise... I'd be sneezing 24-7, you know, March through November with my allergies. I'm thankful for that. Um, I'm thankful my son has had a fever this weekend. I'm thankful we have fever-reducing medicine, you know. We pray and we give it to him, and if he doesn't get better, we'll go to the doctor. That's the way it works, but I'm not, you know out there on a mind-altering drug. And, and that's really the heart of this word witchcraft is with pharmakia is using these mind-altering drugs. Um, there's a whole real good study on Ephesus and uh, the city of Ephesus and Ephesians and the people and their worship of these Greek gods where they would actually go into these caves and these fumes would come out and actually get them high or they would make concoctions, pharmakia, to get them high uh, in a sense. I mean, just think of the 60s. Think of narcotics, uh, opiates, etc. Um, again, our culture has really become all about this. How many people do mind-altering drugs all the time um, for entertainment or for fun or for recreation? I mean, that was me before the Lord. And I'll tell you, I didn't even do the hardest quote-unquote stuff out there, but man, it began to open me up to spiritual things. You know, we think if your mind is not under your control anymore, that's probably pretty dangerous, given that there is a spiritual reality here. We we talk about uh, demon possession and things. But man, it opens you up. I just read this article the other day, and I'll put the notes online if you want the link. But it says, a U.S. teen dies after taking hallucinogenic drug, uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, Ayusca in Peru. Um, it says this, uh, it's from the time.com. It says, Kyle Nolan's body was discovered by Peruvian police buried in a shamanic center where he took the drug as part of a ritual. That's a witchcraft center, a shaman. Uh, And it says drug tourism is not rare uh, is not rare to parts of the Peruvian rainforest where travelers from North America and Europe come to sample the supposed healing qualities and hallucinogenic effects of this uh, drink that they take a traditional herbal medicine. For Carl Nolan, an 18-year-old from Northern California, this trip was fatal. Basically, they go down there, they go in the woods, they meet with a shaman, they drink this drink, and it makes them uh, vomit and have hallucinations, and it's supposed to cleanse them out spiritually on the inside. <laughs> You're getting cleansed of something. Uh, but this kid died. This kid died. And we think about the drug trade, you know, uh, right or wrong, I mean, obviously, with all these people doing drugs in America, I don't think it's ever going to stop. But where are these drugs coming from? They're coming from South America, coming from how do they figure out how to make cocaine? You know, it was probably from these different things. How do they figure out how to make these drugs It came from these other religions? Um, But in our society, people are opening themselves up to everything and anything in search of a high, in search of a spiritual awakening, in search of a spiritual cleansing. And uh, we're seeing the fruits of that, you know. And back to the chapter that the Samaritans attributed this guy's tricks to being godly power. That Simon would come into town, you know, make his uh, wife disappear. I don't know what it was, what his trick was. Um, but people would say, oh, that's godly power. And we see that today, you know, these street magicians who do these crazy tricks. And some of them are tricks, some of them I like, go, oh, I don't know if that's just a trick. Um, but people attribute all sorts of powers and fame to these people. Um, but I think we tend to see this even on so called Christian television reaching on Christian television, and there's some guy doing a magic trick, knocking people over, claiming that he's healing them, claiming that they're being cleansed out. And I go, I don't know about that. But Second Thessalonians 2, 9 uh, through 12, we we're not going to read the whole thing, but it talks about the coming of the Antichrist, and it says that um, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. That yes, there are real magic tricks out there that aren't just tricks, that are spiritual. There are things that go on in this world that are powerful, that are miraculous, but they aren't of God and we need to watch out for that because it's not God. But when Philip showed up, they saw real miracles and they believed and they were baptized. And even Simon was baptized, which I think is interesting. If we read this, we see that Simon actually gets saved. Simon actually gets baptized. Simon actually follows uh, Philip and the disciples here. But I think, you know, if you ever watch a movie and something happens in the movie and then everything gets calm and the movie's kind of going on you go, they're hanging a little too long in the scene. Something is going to happen here and then the characters don't know what's going to happen and then something happens. Well, I think that's sort of like what we're reading here right now where we've just been introduced to Simon and Simon gets saved, but there's still something not quite right and we're going to get into that now. Uh, verse 14. Uh, uh, Acts 8:14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem Heard uh, that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying of the, on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying give me this power also that anyone on whom i lay hands may receive the holy spirit but peter said to him your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of god could not be purchased with could be purchased with money you have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of god repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray god if it perha- uh, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. You know, it's interesting that the church, when they heard about this going on, they sent people. And I think that's a precedent that when we hear about the work of God going on, that we would go. We would go in prayer. We would go in gifts. But we would also go uh, in person and be a part of what's going on um, somewhere. Um, Sometimes it doesn't have to be this magnificent call of God on your life to go somewhere. Sometimes you just hear, hey, God is doing something great somewhere. Let me go be a part of it. Let me go encourage it, even if it's just for a little while. Um, but they send them to go down there, and it says that the Holy Spirit hadn't yet come upon them, and I think that's interesting, because we see all all the time in Jerusalem before the persecution that the Holy Spirit came upon them, but now it seems that God wants to work in this area through the laying on of hands, I think that God wants to to show them that the authority is through these leaders of the church, is through the church, and not in a religious sense, but I think that God maybe wants to show them uh, something different. Uh, You know, He's done these miracles in them, but they've been so exposed to witchcraft and idolatry that they, maybe they need it a little differently. But I ask that, you know, have you and I received the Holy Spirit? And have we asked for Him? And were we prayed for? You know, again, it's not this mystical, magical thing when the Holy Spirit uh, comes into our lives that, yes, we can get saved, and yes, the Holy Spirit lives in us, but we haven't yet received the baptism. That's to go out and do the works of God, to go out and be um, uh, the hands and feet of God on earth. But... Man, have we prayed for it? Have you asked God for it? And if you haven't, I encourage you, ask God, Lord, you'd baptize me. I mean, I ask it every day. Lord, I, I need you every day. Um, help me. But, you know, baptism is a sign of dying to self, uh, being raised with Jesus, that they have a cleansed conscience. But baptism in the Holy Spirit is a new life, a quote-unquote possessed life. You know, remember these people, they were into spiritual things. They had been possessed by demons prior, but now God wants to possess them, and and that word possess I use it just as a as a picture here, but it's it's a relationship. God's not going to take over you, so you're walking around uncontrollably under the power of God. No, we have to uh, be submitted to it as we desire. But Jesus says um, in Matthew 12:43 through 45, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes out through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. You know, we can't clean ourselves up and expect to keep it that way. You know, there's people who are seeking to be spiritually cleansed by going through these shamans or going through drugs or going through things other than God. It's only going to be worse for them in the end. You know, it says that, yeah, this man had a demon cast out on Jesus is talking about, but that as he swept up his home, no one else moved in. You know, we're designed to have someone live in us. That's God, the Spirit of God. So if the Spirit of God's not in us, we're open to someone else moving in. And I know that this is a deep subject that we could get more into, but the spiritual realm is, is real, gang, and it's, it's something that we shouldn't play around with. You know, and our world does it very, uh, takes it very nonchalantly these days. Um, but sorcery magic you know it's very secret it's hidden it's passed down only to approve people and it's very guarded but it's not so with god with the power of god it's free for everyone you want to receive the holy spirit great believe in god and god will give you his power and give you his relationship with him um, you know we don't need to go through a secret ritual and you know pay certain fees and go through this whole deal to get it you know we just need to to know god uh, but Simon sees this and he's totally blown away. He goes, yeah, I'm saved. I'm following them. Sorry, Coda. And he goes on and keeps walking after them. <laughs> I with the dog. And he follows them and sees them. And he goes, wow. Hey, can, can I get that? Can I get this power of the Holy Spirit? We didn't have it before. You guys come to town. You guys have something special. You lay hands on them. And all of a sudden, they have the power of God to do ministry. And uh, <laughs> basically, the disciples realize that they've been missing a monetary windfall in charge in 1995. At per hand and everyone else after and the church gets rich and no that's not what happens They go, no way you know Jesus said in Matthew 21 you know you guys have made my house um, a den of thieves it's supposed to be a house of prayer that I'm not going to charge you for the gifts of God the gifts of God are free and even then what's a handful of gold to God it's, it's nothing you know and I think to here the offense wasn't the amount it wasn't that Simon didn't offer them enough money it was, this, it was because he offered them money at all And that this offering of money that he wanted to give for the power of God meant that Simon didn't quite get it. That there was something quite wrong with Simon's heart. And I think that's why the Bible talks about money so much, is that it's a very clear indicator of where our hearts are at. Because God doesn't really care about money. It's got Caesar's face on it. It's got the president's face on it. God doesn't care about that. And he says very harsh words to him. He says, your money perish with you. Your money perish with you. Wait, didn't this guy get saved? But again, there's something very wrong. You know? and, and I think, can we be saved and be in a lot of spiritual trouble? Yes, I think so. I think so. He says, neither part nor portion. You, know, you don't get an assignment. You don't get a portion in this ministry. Um, what obtained by Lot, this uh, idea of you know, how the Israelites received their land by Lot, that this wasn't allotted out to him. Um, but you know why he couldn't receive it? It's because there was sin in the way there is an iniquity in this man's heart that was in the way you know jesus says in matthew 5 8 blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god this word pure is purified by fire it's clean Um, it's not forbidden it's ethically it's morally blameless it's unstained by guilt it's in the sense this very opposite word to this word iniquity that we've seen so far and i have to say if we can't see god if you and i can't see god in our lives currently Maybe there's some impurity in us clouding our vision. I mean, maybe God is bringing you through a wilderness season and testing your faith, quote-unquote. But maybe there's something in us that's twisting and, and not hearing what God is saying correctly. And I think that that was the sin in Simon's life, that although he believed God into salvation, his view of God was still greatly distorted. He thought, I can pay you, God. I'll get some money to disciples, and I'm going to get the things of God. And it's really not like that at all. And we think about heresy or apostasy in the church and in Christianity, and a lot of times these things have a sin very deep within them that twists the gospel. You know, someone who ends up being a heretic or an apostate, usually, a lot of times, it actually has a sexual connotation to them, that they have some perversion that they haven't let go of, and it begins to pervert their lives and pervert their doctrine, and they end up going off this, this strange way. But Simon here is told to repent and pray, and I think it's interesting that uh, he's told that perhaps perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. And I think that that's deep, that it's the thought of his heart may be forgiven you. Isn't that harsh? It wasn't the fact that he handed over 20 bucks. Hey, can I buy this from you? But it was the thought in his heart saying, yeah, this is how this is done. This is how I acquire the things of God by buying them. You know, where did Simon get his money anyway? From sorcery. Um, you know, didn't he just make a mistake? Wasn't this just an honest mistake I mean, he used to be a sorcerer and sort of an honest mistake here, but I think the, the deeper problem is that he's trying to mix his faith with his flesh. You know, he had seen a greater trick here. He had seen a greater power. In a sense, he wanted his magician's life to continue, but he wanted to incorporate the Holy Spirit into his act. He wanted this to be his sorcerer's act from now on, that, yeah, I'm still a sorcerer, but now I'm a sorcerer for Jesus, and it doesn't really work that way. You know, we'll see it later in Ephesus uh, in Acts nineteen nineteen. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them in a total of 50,000 pieces of silver that we see other sorcerers later on in the book of Acts in Ephesus get saved. And what do they do? They burn everything. They say, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. I realize how wicked it was and they turn. And we're going to close here in a minute. But, but God deals with us. One thing at a time, one thing at a time in your life and in my life, one thing at a time, because he knows we can't handle more than one thing at a time. I was carrying stuff out to my car this morning, and uh, my wife got the door for me. She's like, can I help you with anything? I was like, no, 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 you know how I like to carry too much at once and never ask for help. That's sort of my life. Um, But really, God says, no, 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 I'm going to give you one thing at a time to deal with. And it's whatever was most pressing. You know, the most pressing thing in Simon's life was that he got saved. God didn't say, stop being a sorcerer. He said, come to me, Simon follow me, Simon, get saved, Simon. Um, but then next was the issue of his lifestyle. The sorcery, his heart, his ambitions, his motives, his desires, his worldview. You know, that's in our lives, not seeing, here from God. Um, you know, God's going to bring that to the top. He's going to deal with that one at a time. You know, when, when I got saved, I was a drug addict. I was in relationships. I was doing all sorts of different things. And God didn't say, give up these things. He said, just come to me. And then he began to deal with them. And some things went away right away and other things down the line, and other things he's still dealing with me today about. You know, he's putting stuff in front of me to deal with, uh, constantly to deal with, next thing and next thing, or the same thing over and over because I'm thick-headed and I don't get it. But again, you know, it's like, what's more, more, more important, that someone quits smoking or they get saved? Well, it's obviously get saved, and then it's quit this and quit that because only one thing affects their eternity. You know, don't clean yourself up and come to God. A lot of people say that. Hey, I'm going to clean up, and when I get myself cleaned up, then I'll come to church, then I'll come to God. You know, it's not going to work. You're going to end, off, end, off, end up worse than you were to begin with. You know, come to God and let Him clean you up. And as we close here, we see that uh, He was told that He was poisoned by bitterness. And bitterness is very dangerous. You know, we think sometimes that we can hang on to it, but uh, maybe He was bitter they didn't have that power. Maybe He was bitter they didn't have the influence anymore, that he couldn't drum it up. Maybe He was just bitter in life and that's what led him to sorcery i don't know but whatever it was it was poisoning him and this bitterness this was making him spiritually sick you know hebrews 12 14 through 16 says uh, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the lord looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of god lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled lest there be uh, you know like esau who sells his birthright I think it's interesting that it's called a root of bitterness. That bitterness takes root in our lives like a weed. It starts out as a little thing, but then it begins to take hold of our heart and go deeper and deeper and deeper until it makes us completely sick spiritually to where our spiritual eyes and our spiritual condition is messed up because bitterness is in there. If you guys have ever done any gardening, you know, man, it's hard to get roots out sometimes. It's hard to get weeds out because they go so deep. And that's the same thing with bitterness. If we're clinging to and letting something take hold of us in unnatural ways, like bitterness. Do we see the similarity with demonic possession here? The spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional holds. This relationship between witchcraft. This relationship between a root of bitterness. I mean, think about a lot of these things in the witchcraft. They're roots. They're herbs, right? And they cook them up in unnatural ways. And get yourself a high or all sorts of things with that. And that's the same thing with bitterness. It's unnatural. And we allow it to unnaturally feed us, make us bitter. Um... And change us in a bad way but it also says that he was bound by iniquity you know the depth of this perversion and i'm not saying it's a sexual one but that there was this perversion this twist this vent in his life um was very deep very deep to it god says you know it tells him if the thought of your heart may be forgiven you know that this might be bound together like a bundle and that every little sinew of simon's life was really binding him up that yeah he got saved, yeah he was baptized, yeah he was following disciples, but man, his life needed to be completely unraveled and unwound, and sometimes it takes serious unraveling in our lives for God to get really get a hold of us. And I think we need that reminder, Jeremiah seventeen, nine through ten. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? I the Lord search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So that you know we can't follow our heart, guys. Especially if there's bitterness in there. Especially if we're bound up by sin and iniquity. You know, would God forgive us? Would God forgive Simon? You know, perhaps God would forgive you, he's told. Yeah, of course God would forgive him. But I think that these words are so harsh because this bitterness is so deep in his life. This poison is so deep that Simon really needs to step back and really lay himself out before the Lord and say, God, unravel me. See what's really going on in me. And as we close here, we see the the apostles continue and they testify in many villages, the Samaritans. Um, And I think it's great that they're already fulfilling the words of Jesus in in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Before Jesus ascends, he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That these words are being fulfilled, that I'm sure the disciples, when Jesus spoke them, they didn't quite get it, they didn't quite put two and two together, and now only a few chapters later they're being fulfilled. Um, you know, and Samaria, probably where they didn't want to go. God's doing something great there right on the heels of the Jews rejection. God says, okay, Jews, you've rejected me. I'm going to go to the people that you guys used to reject. And again, you know, iniquity, bitterness and blindness, you know, we don't want these things in our life. We want forgiveness, freshness and fullness. And it's only if we allow God to come in and uproot that out of our lives. Amen. So God, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your word that you showed us these things and that uh, while Simon asked for prayer, Lord, I'm sure they pray for him, God, but would you pray for us, Lord? Would you um, remove iniquity and bitterness in our lives? And God, uh, just help us to see you for who you are, not that we might do anything for you, that we might just know you better. And bless uh, your people today and the churches around here and our families and friends, and uh, heal my little boy, I pray, God, and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.